0: My name is Kent. Uh, Pastor Joe was gracious to let me come out and talk to you about a, a very practical subject. It's something that I care deeply about. Um, somebody asked me this evening at dinner, uh, why integrity? Is it something that I'm really into? And I said, well, I am into it. I mean, the Word of God is into it. I'm into it. It's something I've always been fascinated by. It's something I long for. I shared briefly this afternoon, we talked earlier about my desire for people to finish the race well, and how much I want to see examples of that. I have a, a bit of a church brat. I grew up a pastor's son, or theological offspring, as they call it, and uh, grew up around the church, was there every time the church was open, and so I had that unique perspective, and I've, I, I've always been nearby and close to a church, and it's fun to, um, to learn and to see how God uses people and equips them for a lifetime of ministry. Um, But at the same time, being a pastor's kid, I got to see some folks not finish well. I got to see some folks blow their lives to pieces, make bad decisions. Um, People I respected, heroes of mine, even pastors and leaders. And, you know, you folks, you've been around long enough, most of you, to know that people do make mistakes and they blow it. And... um, You do ask the question at times, does anybody finish well? Does anybody run the course? Does anybody have integrity? And so that's why I care very deeply about this. Um, If I could somehow encourage you by the time we end our weekend together that you are um, enthused and inspired to care more deeply about being a man or a woman of integrity, well, then I've done my job. Uh, that you would leave this place and be committed to finishing the race well. That's what we want to see happen. And so we're talking about integrity, and I, I, I told uh, Pastor Joe, I want to spend our time in Philippians chapter 2. I feel like there's so much rich truth in Philippians chapter 2. And so you can go ahead and turn there if you want to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be spending uh, our time this weekend in the second chapter, verses 12 through 18. And there's just so much to, to take out of this passage that I think will be useful to us. Um, but I have a bit of a challenge for you. In verse 12, the very first word of the Scripture we're going to be studying is, "therefore." Now, when I was in seminary, I had a professor tell me that whenever there's a therefore in Scripture, it's therefore for a reason. And you ought to ask yourself, what's it there for? So you read what comes before the Therefore. And I think it's so interesting that that whole explanation of Christ's humility precedes our study on integrity. One of the things I want to point you out to uh, this weekend is to make a connection between humility and integrity, how it really requires humility to be a person of integrity. And Paul holds up Christ as the ultimate example of humility and challenges us to have his mind, to have his attitude, and then launches right into A diatribe on integrity. I think that's interesting. Oftentimes we think about Christ's humility, and then we talk about integrity, and they're separate subjects. But you've got to follow his stream of thinking here, his line of thought. And so if you go back and look at chapter 2 and verse 1, I mean, this whole passage there, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here is the passage we're going to be studying. Let me just read it to you. Therefore... holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So here's the point. That first section is about Christ's humility, and it leads right into a therefore, and the therefore is his argument for our integrity. And he talks about this thing called working out your salvation, which tends to perplex people. And so what I want to do tonight is talk about what he means by that. What does it mean to work out our salvation? Well, let me tell you a little story that kind of frames what I want to say. It's a story about a man who resisted his wife's urgings to get out of bed on a Sunday morning for church. He said, give me three good reasons why I should get out of this soft, warm bed. Okay, first, he said, I'm your wife and you should respect my wishes. He doesn't move. Second, she said, God wants you to go to church. No effect. Third, she exclaimed, you're the pastor, and the congregation is expecting a sermon. (laughs) So all that to say is it sort of communicates that you have to make an effort. God has called us. He saved us. He's equipped us. He's endowed us with the Holy Spirit. And yet, as I shared earlier today, there's this thing called sanctification, being made holy. Haggiatso is the word, being set apart for holiness for God. And so God takes us through this journey of life in a process of sanctification in which you are gradually, by degrees, being transformed and conformed into the image of Christ. And so there's this process that we're in. And here's the thing. I shared with you today how there's bookends on sanctification, There is justification and glorification. Now, those two events, the justification and glorification, those are singular events with which you have no part. You do not cause your justification. That is God acting on your life and saving you from your sins, okay? Your glorification, that's not you. You don't have a part in that. God glorifies you either when you die and stand before him or Jesus returns, So you don't have a part in those roles, but in sanctification, in the process between those two bookends, you do. You participate in what is a cooperative venture with the Holy Spirit in your life in which He works in your life and you have to yield to His work and participate. So there is work toward the Christian life. Work is not a bad word unless you apply it to justification. Then you got problems. But if you apply work to sanctification, it fits the biblical ideal that God has called us and equipped us, but also challenged us to work out our salvation. So Paul's not going against his own thinking here when he says, work out your salvation. He's acknowledging that there's something we have to put in. There's some effort we need to put into our development and sanctification. You have to participate in the process. And so he goes on to say that developing integrity is work, and not just work, he says it's difficult work. That's the first blank in your notes, by the way, if you're taking them. Developing integrity is difficult work. He says it's something that has to be worked out in your life, and it's on you to do it. According to Paul, our salvation is something we have to work out. What does he mean by that? What is he getting at by working out our salvation? Well, let's start with what he's not getting at just to be very clear. Paul is not saying that salvation is something we have to work to get. After all, notice Paul does not say that we are to work for our salvation. So I imagine you're all pretty clear on this. I think Pastor Joe probably teaches this clearly to you, but I want to hit it just to make sure there's no confusion. Paul is not saying, he's not urging us to work for our salvation. He's saying to work out our salvation. There's a difference. We all know that we cannot save ourselves from our sins. There's nothing we can do to earn or deserve salvation. It's unmerited grace. And the Scriptures tell us we're saved through faith and not by our works very clearly. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. The principal scripture. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So you're probably familiar with that passage. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's nothing that you've done. Mark Twain once said that heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. Think about that. It's theologian Mark Twain. It's true. If if heaven went by earning and deserving it, then it'd be filled with pets and not people. Because the truth is, Fido deserves heaven more than we do. Think about it. Your sweet little dog, if you have a sweet little dog at home, you know, wants to please your master, right? Wants to, loves you and unconditionally is faithful to you and doesn't reject you and slap you in the face and turn against you, right? Like people do to God all day long. So in reality, when it comes to doing good deeds, you know who does better deeds than we do? Our dogs, you know, fetch, goo come, right? They obey. This, they're supposed to. And so Mark Twain was right about it. If you want to get into the game of what you earn and what you deserve, well, then we do not deserve heaven by any means. Heaven is not earned. It's granted through grace. It's a gift, a free gift to those who receive it. So Paul here is not wanting to confuse his readers. And I think the church at Philippi knew what he was talking about when he said, work out your salvation. Don't work for your salvation. In this context, Paul isn't suggesting that we somehow contribute something to our salvation. Rather, he says salvation is already there. It just needs to be worked out. One of the truths of Scripture is that when you are saved by grace, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you to reside within you, to be your teacher and your helper and your guide and your promise, your guarantee of your ultimate glorification. And so what does the Holy Spirit do inside of you? All those things. So in that sense, yes, God is living within you. He's present within you and he's teaching and instructing you. And so when God sends his Holy Spirit to live within you, here's the thing that we believe, and I believe this. I believe you guys believe this. Tell me if I'm wrong. But we don't believe that the Holy Spirit comes to us in installments or portions. Right? You went to Dallas. I'm pretty sure I know what you believe. You get the the whole Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's a person, not a liquid, right? You're not pouring him in, pouring him out. Person. So the third member of the Trinity comes to live within you. And as a person, he comes in his entirety. And when he's inside of you, he brings everything that he has, everything he possesses, every gift, every attribute is yours in full when you're saved. By grace. It's all there. Your salvation has been deposited into your life. So all of that is already there. And Paul is saying, but here's your part. You got to draw it out. You got to work it out. It's there, but it's not automatic. Does anybody here um, go to the gym and work out? No, nobody does. Okay. <laughs> you guys don't do that in Seattle, I guess. You go to Costco to get, you know, hot dogs, but we don't go to the gym to work out. Yeah, okay. Well, I I sometimes do. I'm supposed to go. I have a membership, and I'm trying to get there more often. I had a rule. Uh, I turned 40 this summer, and I was trying to be fittest by 40, and I failed miserably. Maybe fittest by 45. We'll see what happens. But when you go to the gym, presuming you ever do that, you go to the gym, and you work out your muscles. Are you going to the gym to, to, to get muscles that don't exist to suddenly form? Or are you going to the gym to work out and stretch and build muscles that already exist, that are already there? And so even the terminology in our own vernacular, work out your salvation, there's a mental image there of when I go to the gym and I work out, I'm building something I already have. I'm stretching it and growing it and building it and strengthening it that's already there. So that's a sort of a good mental picture when you go to the gym working out your salvation. But I want to dig a little bit deeper behind the language here because I think it really describes what Paul is after. In the original Greek language here, the, the word for work out is interesting. It's a term that believers in the first century would have been familiar with. Uh, A little more foreign to us today, but it's actually a mining term. Anybody here a miner? Not a minor, a miner. (laughs) No, minors. Yeah, there's not many miners anymore. In Arizona, we still got a few of them around. Uh, Back in Philippi, in that part of the world, there were a lot of people in the church that did this for a living. They were working in the mines. There were a lot of mines in that part of the world. And so they were familiar because a lot of them had this as a profession. And so Paul chooses purposefully a mining term to describe working out your salvation because he knew the people there would get their mind around that and appreciate it. So this is a mining word, and it was used back in those days to describe the extraction of silver or gold from mines. And that gives you a little bit of an understanding, perhaps, of what Paul is saying. Work out your salvation in other words, mine out your salvation. I want you to mine out the riches of the salvation that God has already deposited within you. Dig it out. Extract it like holy treasure in your life. It's there. Draw it out. Find it like buried treasure. I, I know a lot of us when we were growing up, we're uh, fascinated with buried treasure. I loved Buried Treasure when I was a kid. Um, Every movie, every book I could find on Buried Treasure and Pirates, I just loved it. And I pass it on to my sons. I have three kids. Um, Ethan is eight. He'll be nine next month. Christian is seven and a half. And Claire, my little girl, just turned three. So I got my three kiddos. And you can go, ah, Aw. Okay, there you go. The middle one, Christian, is um, exceptionally unique. He's a wild kid. He's the... The one who will do anything, anytime. And Christian has this thing. Um, since he was a little kid, he's always carried around a toy. Everywhere he goes, he has a toy in his hand. You couldn't pry it out of his hand. It was a train, and it was a truck, you know, and now it's a coin that we got him. It's a real pirate coin because he loves pirates. It's like 500 years old, and we got it uh, at a little store in Cannon Beach, Oregon. We were over in, it's not that far from here, over in Cannon Beach a month ago, I was speaking at a conference at Cannon Beach Conference Center and uh, walking down the road and there's this shop where this guy's a treasure hunter. It's what he does and he has a shop there and some of you probably have been there. And so they had these coins and they had the doubloons, but they're like, you know, $1,500. Ridiculous. But I found a cheap one. He doesn't know the difference. Here, son, here, a real pirate coin called the doubloon if you want. And so he, he's been carrying it around every day, all day for the last month. And I'm I'm kind of terrified he's going to lose the thing. But Christian is just consumed with buried treasure. He loves it, and I don't know if maybe it's our fault because ever since he was younger, we on vacations we'd go to the ocean, uh, we go to the beach, and we would always, we would always make Christian a treasure chest. He wouldn't know about it, but we'd get a treasure chest, find some sort of wood box or whatever, and we would get chocolate, gold coins plastic rubies and whatnot, and put them in there. And we'd bury it in the beach in the sand, like 10 feet from where we're sitting. And, and we would make a map, like a little map, and like burn holes in it so it looks old, you know. And then like why? Like do this, you know, and then it would have X marks the spot, and then we'd put a red X, We you know, where the treasure is. So every time we go to the, the ocean, we, this happened multiple times in the summers we would go, and the first thing you want to do is find the treasure. And so he... He will you know, walk around, use the map, and find it and dig up the treasure. And so now he thinks that there's a treasure in every beach that we go to. The first thing he does when he gets there, he says, Where's the treasure? Where's the map, Mom? And he believes there's something in every beach somewhere. So he is just infatuated with buried treasure. He loves it. And so that's, that's really what Paul is excited about here. He is overjoyed at the concept. You can almost feel the joy oozing out of him despite difficult circumstances because Paul is in jail when he's writing this letter. Not in a happy place, but he's oozing with joy and excitement for people about the riches of their salvation that are buried within them, that God has given them. And he's urging them to find that treasure and pull it out. Integrity is something that has to be worked out. And so God deposits holy treasure within us. And so I If you look at Scripture, um, through the Holy Spirit, God has deposited qualities in us, holy treasure qualities that God has given us access to. And it's not just the salvation that we have from our sins, but the qualities He gives us to live our lives, to actually pursue integrity. Uh, In Galatians 5, it's described as the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit, of course, is the byproduct of the Holy Spirit. People tend to think of apples and oranges and all that. That's not what he's thinking of. It's what the Spirit produces. It's the treasure he brings to us. And, of course, that list is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit, or dare I say, the treasure of the Holy Spirit. What is it we're to mine out? What are the riches and the treasures buried within us through the holy spirit there's your list love is a treasure joy is a treasure peace is a treasure patience is a treasure kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control and here's something about those qualities they don't come natural folks it's not like you're just born with these qualities or they just happen automatically like you flip a switch and say okay suddenly I'm, i love and i have joy and i have peace that stuff is spiritually endowed and gifted to you like treasure and you have access to it through the Spirit of God. And so we're mining out these qualities that must be excavated in our lives because they're not automatic. They don't come out on their own. You have to participate in drawing them out or working them out. In the dictionary, the word excavate, and I'll define it for you. I'm quoting from the dictionary. It means to remove earth carefully and systematically from an area in order to find and remove buried remains excavation. To excavate something is to identify an area and then purposefully and intentionally dig. Dig for the buried remains. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an archaeologist. And that was about a week before I wanted to be a firefighter and then a week before. But I wanted to be an archaeologist for a week. And it was after watching Indiana Jones, right? I want to do what Indiana Jones does. I want to find old artifacts and bones and all that stuff. It's so fascinating, the concept of digging for something that might be under the ground. And so I'm fascinated by this concept. It excites me to think that I could dig within my soul in my life through the Spirit of God and find access to beautiful things, valuable, worthwhile, eternal things, real treasure, if you will, not gold and silver, not diamonds and rubies, but the qualities of the Holy Spirit. And so there's this excavation that must be intentional and continual in our lives, and it requires patience and persistence in order to find and uncover buried treasure. When I was um, a teenager, I, uh, my family and we took this road trip around the U.S, and we drove out of Arizona up the California coast and oh, oh up here. <laughs> and then we went east and went all the way over to the Dakotas, and ended up in South Dakota. And uh, we had a chance while we were there. We stayed with some friends in South Dakota, and I got to do something I'd never done before. I went gold panning. Have you ever done, like, real gold panning? I, I got to do that, and I'll never forget what it was like. I-, I was blown away how tedious it was. I had in my mind this idea that you'd, you know, scoop out some dirt out of the, you know, the river right there and throw it around, and there was going to be this gigantic nugget, right? <laughs> Woohoo! Easy as pie. It's not quite that easy. I mean, there are examples of people who have walked into different parks and come out with a nugget of gold or with a diamond or something, right? You can find that stuff sitting on the surface, but really most of it, you're going to have to dig. You're going to have to look for it. And so when I went gold panning, I'll never forget when we were doing that, we spent the entire day, and I think we found like five dollars of little flecks, tiny little dust particles of gold. that I, I couldn't even see. I'm like, that's gold? That's gold. But then the, our guide who was with us is like, Yeah, that's gold. Do you realize? And you put it in a little jar. And at the end of the day, you have like, you know, this much gold dust. And he's like, You have like $10 of gold. Way to go. And for him, it was amazing. I, and he kind of made me realize, Well, that, that was a lot of work for a little bit of gold. But he realized the value of even the tiniest particles of dust of gold. And you accumulate enough of them, you really have something. And so I kind of liken that to the mining we do in our spiritual lives. It's like panning for gold. Um, my, this summer, we took our kids. I was on sabbatical this summer, so we got to do a few trips, and I took my kids to Legoland for the second time. Um, whew, that place is crazy. We, there's a gold panning adventure there. You can pay $3 to go gold panning. So my kids, once again, they go in there, and you pay $3, and you get to stick the thing in the, you know, into the little channel, pulled up, and there are gigantic pieces of fake gold in there. So my kids, once again, think that there's no work involved. It's just, what's the matter, Dad? Just stick it in the water and pull it out, and here's the gold. And so I'm still trying to teach my kids that there's effort in this. There's diligent work. You have to really work hard and persevere and be patient to dig out really worthwhile things. And so it is in our spiritual lives. It takes a lot of work. Painstaking, painstaking, tedious work. It's totally worth it though. The excavation of holy treasure that God has planted within us brings us holy things. The truth is it may take a lifetime to uncover all of the riches that God has planted within us but the the excavation is well worth it. It's well worth it. When you find even a nugget, a tiny little fleck of something God's placed in your life, it should bring you great joy, great worth, and great value. So everywhere you look, you're looking for these little pieces of treasure that God has planted in your life. So then, let me ask this question, and this is important. How do we excavate this love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, all these qualities of integrity? How do we mine them out? How do we draw them out? How do we work them out? He says, with fear and trembling. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... Work out your own salvation, mine it out, with fear and trembling. So the second thing in your notes is that developing integrity is also dangerous work. It's dangerous work. Paul says to do it with fear and trembling. The word for fear here is the word phobos, Just a word about me. I use koine pronunciation. Pastor Joe, do you pronounce koine or do you classical Greek? Logos? You do logos? Okay, I'm a koine guy. So if you hear me, I'm not crazy. I say phobos. That's the koine common Greek pronunciation during the biblical times versus the traditional form, which would be logos or phobos. So I'm not crazy, just it's my habit. The word here is phobos. Phobos, which means to revere or to respect. Work out your own salvation with reverence or respect. You see the word fear there. A lot of people think, well, I think of the word phobia and you'd be right. We get the English word phobia from this Greek word and that means fear. And when you hear the word fear, you probably think of, you know, running and cowering and hiding. Oh my goodness, I'm so scared. That's not what he's getting at. He's not telling you to work out your salvation being scared, running for your life. That's not what he's talking about here. Uh, I have some Cajun roots in my family. They get lazy and they combine words together. And so Cajuns just say, a scared. Don't be a scared, all right? You've never met a Cajun before, have you? Okay, we've got a few of those down south. So don't be a scared. It's not what he's saying here. He said, have a phobia or phobos, a reverence or respect for the process. Drawing out or mining out your salvation ought to be something done with respect and reverence and awe because it's an awesome thing you're doing. View it with the right eyes, with the right mind. See it for what it is. Have a healthy anxiety as you work out your salvation. Now, you might hear the word anxiety and say, well, I thought anxiety was a bad thing. Not always. There is a bad kind of anxiety which Jesus told us not to worry about, right? There's an unhealthy kind of anxiety, but then there's a healthy anxiety. Would you agree that there's times and things that we do in this life that require a degree of a healthy anxiety as you do it? I'll give you an example. Driving a car. Should you have a degree of healthy anxiety, fear, or respect for driving a two-ton killing machine? Absolutely. That's what they told me. I was 16. Do you realize you're driving a two-ton killing machine? You're so don't just hit the gas. You don't re- I mean, I'm actually terrified when I see 16-year-olds behind the wheel now because I think about what I was when I was 16, right? Oh, my goodness, do they even know what they're driving right now? So you go to, like, traffic training school, right? You learn how to drive when you're 15. I don't know, is it driving age 16 up here in Seattle too? Okay. Should be like 19. But the things you learn in, in, in that training program, they teach you to respect the vehicle. Understand that you're driving something that can kill you and kill others very easily. It's a dangerous weapon. So respect the weapon. How about um, shooting a gun? Should you have a healthy degree of anxiety when you handle a weapon like that? The answer is yes, yes. My, my grandfather was a farmer uh, in Iowa. My mom's from Iowa, uh, from a tiny little town. And my grandfather was a, a farmer for his whole life. And uh, loved guns, had all kinds of guns, and he taught me how to hunt. Uh, I'm not a, a hunter per se, uh, but I did learn to shoot guns when I was a kid. And he was always beginning by teaching us to respect the gun, gun safety, respect what it is you're holding. And I'll never forget uh, my little cousin, Aaron, was, he was teaching us how to handle guns, and we had a 12-gauge shotgun, and Aaron got a little trigger happy one day, and he was just learning how to use the weapon, and he discharged it into the ground by accident as we we're standing there. And you can imagine how he all just jumped, right? Someone launches a 12-gauge into the ground. Kaboom! We're all jumping up and looking at what's going on. And he got grilled after that experience for not respecting the weapon, not knowing about what he's handling and understanding the great damage that can be done by handling this weapon. And so there are examples. Goodness gracious, Joe, what you and I do on Sundays, a healthy anxiety, don't we? People say, are you nervous when you get up and teach the Bible? No, not nervous. Anxious, yes. Why? Because this is the holy word of God, and I better handle it well. That's a huge accountability for me. I have a healthy fear for this. And so there's all kinds of examples in our lives that I could give you a litany of them, and you know what they are in your life, of things in which you ought to do with fear and respect. You ought to approach it that way. And so he says when it comes to working out our salvation, mining out our salvation, you should have this kind of fear and respect, this kind of reverence for what you're doing. A healthy anxiety is a good thing. Because when you have a healthy anxiety, it tends to sort of step up your attentiveness. Your focus increases. When you're a little bit nervous, you really focus. I've noticed that even as I prepare messages and deliver them. If I'm anxious a little bit, I'm really paying attention. If I'm nervous driving the car, I'm going to have both hands at 10 and 2 o'clock, right? If I'm handling a gun, I'm going to be careful about keeping the safety on. When you're anxious in a healthy way, you're paying attention, You're paying attention, you're attentive to what is happening in front of you. And so it is with the process of mining out our salvation. Why should you pay attention with fear and respect when you're mining your salvation? Well, you've all seen the stories about the miners around the world who have been trapped and entombed in mines and how they say it's, I think after crabbing, it's probably one of the most dangerous professions in the world. To be a miner, to go down beneath the earth's surface a mile below and to dig, all kinds of things can happen to you. The walls can cave in, you can get crushed by some equipment, you could lose life and limb, there could be gases that escape and you can choke to death. I mean, it's a very dangerous profession, isn't it? Mining is a very scary thing to do. And you apply that to the nature of the Christian life and development of integrity, It's it's a terrifying thing to dig deeply into your own soul as though it is a mine shaft to be explored. Why? Because a lot of people don't. They don't dare look deeply inside. They don't dare check out what's really inside because here's the deal. When you're mining out gold or silver or jewels or whatever out of the ground, you have to go through all the filth to get to it. you got to dig out all the mud and the dirt in order to get to the treasure. And you know what? That's true spiritually as well. When you are mining out your salvation in your life, you've got to get down into the muckety-muck of your soul. You've got to deal with the, the dirt in your own life. Because when you come face-to-face with these qualities of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, you are come face-to-face with the fact that you don't have those qualities. And if anything, you probably have the opposite. And it's like looking in a mirror, and that mirror tells you the truth, Right? So it's so good to dig in and excavate your life to find the buried treasure that God has planted within you to put in the hard and perilous work, but you've got to go through the mire and the mud to do so. Developing integrity is hard work, and it's dirty work. If you want to be a man or woman of integrity, you're going to have to go through your own heart, your own soul, your own mind. You're going to have to come face to face with your own shortcomings and failings and all the things that you've experienced that are deep inside of you. It is a painful process and a dangerous process, but it's beautiful when you face that stuff. And when you come to appreciate God, I I am naturally not a loving person, but you are, so I'm going to deal with my lack of love and I'm going to let your love flow through me. I am not naturally a patient person, God. I'm impatient. So your Holy One, the Holy Spirit, gives me the ability to be patient. But I gotta be honest with myself. I'm an impatient person. I'm an unloving person. That's why this is so dangerous and difficult. To get to the holy things of God, we have to first go through our own sin and our own failure. And for this reason, going into deep, dark places in our lives can be difficult and dangerous work. So I'm here to tell you, integrity is a wonderful thing but it isn't easily achieved. It's a lot of hard work. It's getting down into the thick of it. It's getting through the difficulties and the the dangers in your own life. And so I want to be honest with you. You want to be a man or woman of integrity, you've got to be willing to dig in the dirt. You've got to be willing to excavate your own soul. And maybe that's why he says, do it with fear and trembling. That other word is fascinating, trembling. It's a traumatic experience, the Greek word for trembling is traumas, and traumas means to shake and quiver. Hmm. It's the, listen to this, the physical effect that results from having a healthy anxiety or fear. Do you hear that? It's the outward physical effect of having an inward respect and fear for what you're doing. It is the physical manifestation of that healthy anxiety. Whereas fear is the internal response to working out our salvation, trembling is the outer response. In English, we get our word trauma from this word to be traumatized by holy things. What an interesting idea! Traumatized by holy things? You mean that treasure that God has put in my life, not only is it hard to get to because I go through the mud and the filth of my own heart, my own sin, to get to it, but when I find it, it's traumatizing? It is traumatizing. It's very traumatizing. Why? Well, three reasons. Let me give them to you. First, it's the one I already talked about. It's traumatizing because you have to go through really hard things to get to it. You've got to dig through the mud and the dirt of your own sin to get to it. That's one reason why it's traumatizing. But the second reason is that you're handling holy things. You and I are unholy creatures. You know that, right? And that we worship a holy God who is worshipped every day and pronounced holy, holy, holy 24-7 for all eternity because he's completely and wholly distinct and other. He is completely holy, Scripture says, and so whatever he gives to us, and by all means, his presence in our life, is holiness. And as you are traumatized by a holy God in a good, healthy way, you ought to be traumatized by what he gives you and what he puts in your life. Don't underestimate the traumatizing experience of the Holy Spirit of God operating in your life. You should be traumatized by that because this is God in you. How can the God of the universe live within you and traumatize your life? How could that not dramatically change you? How could it not just uproot you and turn your world upside down? Of course you'd be shaking and shivering when you're in the presence of a holy God, but when God lives within you, operating, teaching you, challenging you, that ought to shake you up in a really healthy, good way. Handling holy things is always traumatizing. When you look at Scripture, there are abundant examples of this. Isaiah might be the greatest example. When Isaiah comes in face to face with God in Isaiah 6, he talks about his encounter with the holy God and how he is undone. I'm undone in front of this holy God. I don't deserve to be here. Isaiah is a great example. Moses, when he encounters God in the cleft of the rock and God passes by in his holiness, he can't even look at God's face because he will be dead. The traumatizing experience of encountering a holy God, he has to hide in the cleft of a rock and look at his back parts. His after effect, if you will, is what it says. Because that's all he can handle as a fallen human being. Traumatized. Moses was traumatized. He comes down off the mountain of Sinai with the Ten Commandments. What's happening to his face? It's glowing and shining because he had encountered God on, on the mountaintop, and everyone's terrified of Moses because of how he looked. Traumatized by an encounter with a holy God. I think of Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul encounters Jesus. And he falls to the ground and he's blinded by the light. He's overwhelmed by the glory and the holiness of Jesus. And you keep going and look at Peter and James and John at the transfiguration. They're brought up on the mountain and Jesus pulls back his humanity and reveals his divinity to them. And they're petrified, terrified, traumatized by the experience. Every encounter you see in Scripture of people encountering the Shekinah glory of God, His holiness in any form or matter, they are traumatized by it. You and I must be too. And even if you don't encounter God in that such personal, physical way in your life, you do encounter Him every day through the Holy Spirit who lives within you. And so you're encountering a holy God every day. Right here. Right here. That ought to be traumatizing. You are dealing with holy things. And holy things deserve respect and honor and fear. And as you mind those things out, you take it very seriously. You take the development of your integrity and implementing the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the, the, the treasure he puts within us very seriously because it's from him. It's his. Remember the game Hot Potato as a kid? I was just thinking, I don't know why I was thinking about that today as I was preparing my talk here. You know, you sit in a circle and the kids throw the potato around and when the music stops or someone says hot, whoever's holding it, you know, is stuck with it and gets out of the game. It's a hot potato. You've got to pass it off to somebody else. We're talking about spiritual hot potatoes here. Holy things that God has given you and you hold them. Wow! This is, this is incredible stuff. And we look at the treasure of the Holy Spirit, and we often kind of minimize it or just sort of ignore it and be like, yeah, fruit of the Spirit. You should look at those things and just be blown away by them. Wow. And be traumatized by it. <laughs> Having integrity is also costly. Uh, the third thing here it's traumatic because it's also costly in your life. Mining out salvation is costly because when you practice these things and put them into place in your life, you might lose something. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because you might actually lose something of value. Um, I'm willing to bet in this room there are people here tonight who have lost out on something in their lives because they wanted to have integrity. I I can't tell how many people I know... um, have told me stories, and I've experienced it myself, in which in their jobs, they're pressured to cut corners, to repackage things, or to change some numbers, or leave some T's uncrossed, or dies undotted, to fudge the numbers, if you will, or whatever you have to do to please your boss, to sell your company's stock, to close a deal. I know a lot of Christian men and women that have been in positions like that, and they've had to say No my integrity matters, and I'm going to make the hard choice. I'm not going to do that. And some of them have lost their jobs because of it. Maybe somebody here has had that experience where you have taken a stand for truth and integrity, and you made some hard decisions, and it cost you something. Maybe it was a job. Maybe it was a friendship. Maybe you had to draw the line and say, I'm not willing to do that, and so it cost you friendships. I, I, I have all kinds of examples in my life. I've had this happen. I, when I was in college, I, w- I was in a wedding party. I I remember this. Um, and the guys, well, it was a mix of people, and they wanted to do a bachelor party, and they wanted to um, visit, oh, I don't know, a place that probably a godly man shouldn't be visiting. Let's put it that way. And I I had to tell my friend, um, even though I was in the wedding party, we went to dinner, and then they were going to go to this place after dinner. And I said, guys, I, I just, I can't do that. I can't go with you. And not in a judgmental sort of way, not pointing the finger at them, I I understood all the complexities of the people who were there, but for me, it was a matter of violating my conscience. It was a matter of integrity, and I would not put myself in a position like that. And I said no, and honestly, they laughed at me, and they got mad at me, and um, it pretty much wrecked the wedding for me. Um, I don't regret it, though. I don't regret it, because I I believe I pleased Christ. I felt the Spirit of God confirming in my heart that I was making the integrity decision. Um, I I think about a time, it's kind of funny, I I told you about... College. When I was working through um, school, selling clothes, I worked at a store called J Crew, and and um, mainly because you get a discount on the clothes. But I was there for I think four years, and I'll never forget um, the manager. I was doing really well, and the manager uh, wanted to move me back to the women's department. I'd always been working in the men's department, primarily in the shoes area, and they wanted to move me back to the women's department because they were short on staff or something. And I don't know, if, you know, like J Crew or not, but they have sections you know, of certain places, like some for women's clothing. Then they have the, uh, shall we say, the intimates section in the women's area. And then they have the changing rooms right there. And so my boss uh, put me back there. I want you to work in this section today. And uh, I was there no more than, I think, 10 minutes, and the lady comes out in her brassiere. (laughs) Hello! And I I just, I I said, this is probably not a good place for me. Um, And I, I remember, conflicted my spirit like, okay, Lord, what should I do here? I don't want to be a freak. <laughs> I don't want to be you know, weird about this, but I want to be true to my conscience, and I want to protect my eyes and be careful here. And so I went to the manager, and I pulled her aside and said, could I please be moved to another area on the floor? And she got mad at me. She said, "You, what's wrong with you? Man up. Don't be such a dork. And, a, you know. and she, uh, I actually lost on a promotion because of it. They did not promote me to the next role because she thought I wouldn't work the whole floor. I wasn't really doing my job. And so for me, that was a matter of integrity, and I took a shot for that. And so I I, I don't know, I had these experiences littered in my mind of where I felt like I had to make a decision and take a stand for integrity. And you ask me why I care about integrity, because it's cost me something. And when something has cost you something, you care deeply about it. When you've bled for something, you've, you've lost something in the process, you tend to care about it. You want to care about integrity, then bleed for it. Risk and lose something for it. When it finally costs you something because you want to have integrity, you will care more deeply about having integrity. It grows in value when you treat it as such. That's what I've learned. And so integrity has great value because it's cost me something. It will cost you something. It can cost you money, opportunities, friendships, jobs. And that's why it takes great courage. I was talking, as everybody's talking right now about the clerk in Kentucky who's in jail right now. And I realize there's a big debate about this, so I'm not going to get into all the arguments about it, but the reality is here's a gal that staked her position, is towing the line in her convictions. It's a matter of integrity for her. And her job says she needs to do it, and she says, I won't. And so she's in jail right now. Here is a perfect example of somebody willing to lose something to maintain their own integrity. There's a healthy fear and respect that goes into making that kind of decision because it's hard. And you ask yourself, if I'm ever put in a position like that, what would I do? I ask myself that question. I'm a pastor. Joe and I have to live with the reality that I live in a world in which I could be sent to jail someday because of my refusal to do certain things. That, that day may come, and I've got to be willing to say, okay, send me to jail, or worse, You've got to make up your mind now what you're willing to risk and lose to, to maintain your integrity. And so that's why this is fearful and trembling. Working out your salvation, maintaining and developing integrity is a, is a dirty and mired process. It's risky, it's costly, and it takes great courage. But I want to encourage you to have that courage. I want to encourage you to be willing to take the risk to handle those holy things and go ahead and tremble as you do, but take them seriously and mine them out and excavate them into your life and let God do his work. Uh, I love what Chuck Swindoll once said about this. He wrote about the kind of courage it takes to have integrity, and I quote, he said, courage is not limited to the battlefield or the Indianapolis 500 or bravely catching a thief in your house. The real tests of courage are much quieter They are the inner tests, like remaining faithful when nobody's looking, like enduring pain when the room is empty, like standing alone when you're misunderstood. Those are the real tests of integrity, and they take courage. To have integrity, you've got to have courage. It's the courage that drives you deep into the minds of your soul and keeps you there. And so I guess I want you to understand first that developing integrity is a lot of work and it ought to be done with fear and trembling, with an awesome respect. But here's the good news. The good news is you don't have to do it alone. The great news here, and Paul says this, is you don't have to do this work by yourself. This awesome, tremendous work of dealing with holy things and drawing them out is not just on you, it's also on God. He participates In that process, he comes with you into the mine. He goes with you into the mire and the mud and helps you draw those things out. You never go there alone. And that's what makes integrity way worthwhile. And so tomorrow morning, we're going to talk about how God contributes to the development of our integrity. Does this all make sense to you? Is it meaningful to you? Is it something that is helpful to you in your life? Does it help to understand what he means by working out your salvation with fear and trembling? If there's any gaps in this, anything that isn't quite connecting, I'd love to, to be able to try to answer your questions. I know that Pastor Joe has set aside about a half an hour, I think, at the conclusion of this for Q&A. Do I just stay up here for that, or do you want to direct that? We'll take a quick break. For okay, so then let me do this. Why don't you think about any questions you might have about this, or Joe, can they ask about anything? Mm-hmm. Is this like open Q&A? I mm-hmm. mean, you told me to court controversy, mm-hmm. so I guess you all like controversy, so fire away. But before we take that break, can I pray for us and wrap up this time? Father, I um, thank you for your holy word. Lord, I thank you for this, um, this text in Philippians that Paul wrote so long ago, Lord, that has great, powerful meaning for us, Lord what it means to mine out the riches of our salvation that you have given to us in Christ. Father, thank you that the Holy Spirit dwells within us as our teacher and our helper and our guarantee. Father, I pray that we would allow him to help us mine out the holy riches you've placed in our hearts and our souls and our minds. Father, it's there. I pray that we would have the courage to go in and to deal with the mud and get our hands dirty. God, please allow us to go with you into the darkness, Lord, and to pull out the wonderful, beautiful things you've given us, Lord, these qualities that are real treasure, that we might apply them to our lives and therefore live as people of integrity, people who evidence the character of our God, the holy qualities of you, Lord, in our lives reflected, we pray. Father, help us to do that. Empower us by your Spirit to do it. Give us courage to care about the daily decisions, the tests of integrity. Help us to be courageous as we face opposition and temptation. Give us victory, I ask, by the Holy Spirit that we would be shining lights in the dark world in which we live. Father, please do this for the glory of Christ. For His name we pray. Amen.